Welcome to the Sirius seminar for January 16th. Uh, I'm Chris Clifton. I, uh, among other things, am the faculty member who's in charge of the seminar, so I figured I would grab an early slot here, introduce myself. And what we're going to cover today is a primer on data privacy, uh, particularly concentrating on how we measure privacy, but also some of the basic legal aspects, uh, some things you ought to know. I suspect we will have more talks later in the semester that go into more detail on privacy technology and hoping to get you up to speed so that you'll be prepared for those. Uh, please interrupt with questions to any point that uh, if you have anything. And when you have a question, remember to press the button and make sure the green light comes on on the mic in front of you so that those who are listening to the recording will be able to hear your questions. So what is privacy? Well, privacy has a number of you know, things that people think of. Uh, in the United States, kind of one of our first real articulations of the right to privacy was captured by Warren and Brandeis in a Harvard Law Review article, they referred to privacy as the right to be let alone. Uh, now to be truthful, this uh, statement is they don't claim ownership. They actually cite a uh, previous text that had made that statement, but they were really the ones who made it famous as being a clear statement of what we consider privacy in the US. So in the sense, from an information security point of view, that means my information is protected so that it doesn't adversely affect me in the future. That you know, I'm, I'm let alone in a sense, that I'm not having these things come back and bother me. Uh, control over data. My information is only used in ways that I approve of. Uh, you know, people make information available on Facebook publicly, but then they feel their privacy is violated if it's misused. Uh, so it's not just about keeping data secret. There's more to it than that. So some of the issues, disclosure and sharing of information. What do we mean by approved use? What recourse do we have if privacy is violated? These are some of, some of the issues. So here's a more modern view of the goal of data privacy. This is from the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union. Now, everybody hears today about GDPR. How many of you have seen things that have been done because of the, the general data protection regulations. How many of you all start seeing these web notes saying, please accept our use of cookies? That's a result of an interpretation of what GDPR requires. Uh, now, GDPR is a long document that is basically trying to enforce this one clause in the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union, 
which basically says that everyone has the right to protection of personal data concerning him or her. Note, not about or by or owned by or anything it's concerning. Such data must be processed fairly for specified purposes on the basis of consent of the person concerned or some other legitimate basis laid down by law. Everyone has the right of access to data which has been collected concerning him or her and the right to have it rectified. So, you know, a lot of things come up here. What do we mean when we say data concerns an individual? What do we mean by protected, by consent? Uh, you know, does this, you consent to use of cookies, click here. If I don't click there, have I not consented if I continue to use the website? Do you think they're not doing anything until I actually click on that? Uh, yes, there are some sites which give you a yes or no option, but a lot of them it's either accept or the banner stays there. And those are the only two options. Uh, you know, what's, what is access? You know, what does it mean to rectify data? So these, these are some of the issues that come up. Some of the obvious answers, data concerning an individual, it has your name, has your address, has identifying information. Uh, you know, protection. It's only used or access in expected, intended, authorized ways. You know, consent. You know and agree to what is done with the data. Access or rectify. You can see the data. You can correct the errors. Turns out these things are not that simple. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that would fall apart if we just looked at these obvious answers, both in terms of privacy and in terms of being able to use data to do things we really want done. Uh, but just some examples of where this gets difficult, let's look at an example of consent. Several years ago, an American family's web photo ended up in a, on a billboard in the Czech Republic. They only heard about this when a friend traveling in Prague saw them on a grocery store poster. <laughs> How did this billboard in Prague get their photo? They liked the photo. They thought it looked good. It you know, looked like a, you know, this is a happy family shopping at our grocery store. You know, they, they thought it looked good. Well, they posted it on Facebook. Now, did the, went, posting it on Facebook consent to having it used in this manner? Well, the Smiths, in a sense, had consented to this sort of use. Because when they posted on Facebook, when you share, post, or upload content that is covered by intellectual property rights, you grant us a non-exclusive, transferable, 
sub-licensable, royalty-free, and worldwide license to host, use, distribute, modify, run, copy, publicly perform or display, translate, and create derivative works of your content, consistent with your privacy and application settings. Facebook could have sold that picture. They didn't, but it had been authorized. They had consented to doing this. Now, this terms of service, actually, if you click on their privacy policy, you don't find this directly. You kind of have to go through a couple of levels of forms to get to this point. And interestingly enough, before April 19th, Facebook had all those rights in perpetuity. In other words, deleting your account didn't terminate those rights. So, you know, this is an interesting thing. Are, did, did, when you signed up for Facebook, did you really consent to this? Well, legally, yes. But do you feel like you did? This is an example of something where legal consent and what we think of in terms of privacy really don't seem to match well. Um, you know, what about some others? Concerning an individual, yeah, somehow identifies you. How many of you have heard of or are familiar with breach disclosure laws? Okay, breach disclosure laws are one of the biggest term, biggest things in, in making computer security visible that have happened in, you know, in my lifetime, I think. There's two things that make it visible. One, when there is a big failure of computer security and it hits the press. But the other is when there's been, you know, that it, like the Morris worm that crashed a whole lot of computers. But the other is when there are breaches, when a lot of data is released. Why do you know about that? You know about it because of breach disclosure laws. They're required to report it. Before that, the solution was, ooh, somebody got our data, let's hide it. Not let anybody know. Breach disclosure laws said, no, you have to tell people. And so now we know when there are failures of computer security and we hear about it. So what does a breach disclosure law mean? Well, this is the Indiana code, which is fairly typical. It's concerning an individual, either if it's a social security number that is not encrypted or redacted. Somehow, how could the data contain a social security number if, it doesn't, if it's been redacted? It doesn't contain it. That seems strange to me. Or personal information is first and last name or initial and last name and one or more of the following data driver's license number, state ID card number, credit card number, financial account number, or debit card number. And also, it doesn't include information lawfully obtained from publicly available information or public government records. Interestingly enough, some other codes like the Indiana Code on Spyware Prohibition has a different definition for what constitutes personal information. 
Um, but you think about this, it means somebody could put out your name, your address, and all kinds of compromising information on you. But it wouldn't trigger a breach disclosure law. So for example, if, um, you know, if the university exposed your transcript, that wouldn't qualify because it doesn't have, well, that's an interesting, it doesn't have your driver's license, state ID card, or credit card number. Um, that's not a breach. And so, you know, breach disclosure laws really, you know, they're designed to protect the individual, but this idea of what constitutes personal information is a bit weak. Also has some interesting implications. If I made a random number generator that generated random nine-digit numbers and put them out, technically I think I would be in violation of this statute because some of those numbers are bound to be social security numbers. Doesn't say you have to have a name with the social security number, just having a social security number even if it's just the output of a random number generator, seems to match this law. So, you know, this is... Defining what me it means to be about an individual can be difficult. And worse yet, even things that you would think of as not having any identifying information can be identifiable. Uh, a decade ago, a little over a decade ago now, there was rather an awakening in the privacy field when AOL released customer web searches. 20 million queries from 650,000 unique users. But they replaced the user ID with a random number. So you couldn't trace this back to the individual. Or so they thought. You know, this was made available for researchers to use. A New York Times reporter looked at the text of the queries, and from this was able to identify an individual. Knocked on the door, said, hey, are you the person who issued these queries? Uh, answer was yes. Nothing in there triggers breach disclosure laws, looks like personally identifiable information, but it turns out it is. And it costs people. Uh, you know, you don't have to break the law to have a privacy violation be a bad thing and cause you problems. Uh, keeps going. The Netflix challenge. I don't know if any are familiar with that, but some people figured out how to re-identify people in this anonymized movie database. Uh, right now, the Census Bureau is looking at changing the way they protect privacy because they have figured that theoretically it is possible to break the techniques they have been using. Uh, hasn't happened yet, but you know, it could be possible. Uh, they don't want to be in this position of, of having these come up. Uh, New York City taxis. They, New York City released 
the start and end point of all taxi rides? Well, if you have a taxi ride from someplace maybe you wouldn't want people to know where you are to your house, which people probably do know where it is, uh, that's kind of identifying. They went to Uber and said, we need your records too. We need to release your records of your rides too. Uber said, oh, we're going to do some things to protect people's privacies before those are released. Actually, New York, City, New York City said, no, we screwed up once, we're going to screw up again, and insisted they release it as is. Uh, all kinds of problems. It turns out removing information is not that easy. Uh, this happened quite a while back, uh, led to a lot of research in computer science on anonymity. Uh, 37 U.S. states at the time mandated collection of hospital admissions information. And under a Freedom of Information Act request, the, um, a, a newspaper in Massachusetts requested that anonymized information on hospital admissions. Well, luckily the judge said, I'm not sure about that, went and happened to know Dr. Sweeney and said, hey, can you come in and testify on this, whether you think this is a reasonable thing? Well, she went out and purchased the voter registration list for Cambridge, looked and said, the voter registration list has zip code, birth date, and gender. The medical data has zip code, birth date, and gender. And guess what? 69% of people in the U.S. are unique on just postcode and birth date. Once we add gender, it's 87%. It means most people were able to be re-identified, including, for example, oh, this is the hospital admission record of the governor. Uh, needless to say, the newspaper did not get their information under that Freedom of Information Act request. Uh, they realized that was a problem. She also came up with a solution to this in conjunction with Sierra, Sierra, Pierangela Samarati in, in uh, Milan. The idea of canonymity was that any combination of values must appear at least k times in the data. The idea is that you don't know which record belongs because any of them are, are equally likely. Uh, so, you know, this, this got us into this idea of anonymity. The goal of anonymity is to basically ensure that given data, you can't figure out what individual that belongs to. And this is handled in GDPR, for example, they define personal data as any information relating to an identified or identifiable natural person. An identifiable natural person is one who can be identified directly or indirectly. It turns out that actually is a pretty high bar. Um, Qatar came out with an interesting one. It was kind of much more plain English. 
data belonging to an individual with specified or reasonably specifiable identity, whether through such personal data or through combining with same or any other data. Uh, problem is, can't be done. Perfect privacy in this sense requires zero utility. So that reasonably specifiable identity maybe covers us here, but GDPR, you know, as soon as we can use the data, you know, we decrypt it, whatever, somebody who has enough external information, enough computing power, is going to be able to figure things out uh, that may qualify as, as identification. Um, you know, we have to accept that there's going to be some risk, that privacy is a trade-off. Um, you know, why is this impossible? Well, the idea is that the adversary may already know a lot. Whatever we provide adds to that knowledge. It may be that, you know, it's that last bit. And essentially, we can formally prove one bit may be too much. That any, you know, that one bit may be the point that takes you from identifying to not identifying. That there's always going to be some point at which another bit of information crosses the line. And you can never know whether the adversary has all but that one bit. And that any information you release may actually violate that. I'm not going to go into the formal proof of this, but just go into a few things we can do and you know, what they accomplish, what they don't. So encryption, standard technique to protect confidentiality of data, also useful for digital signatures to ensure the integrity, you know, or to at least tell you if the integrity is violated. Uh, Anonymization, usable data that's hard to link to individuals. Noise addition, similar to anonymization, but the idea is that um, you get usable data, but any link to individuals or any information you surmise about an individual is suspect. Uh, and if done in a careful way, the utility of the data in the aggregate, say for computing summary statistics, is fairly good, but the utility to determine something about an individual is not. So these are some techniques. So to go into you know, encryption, Encryption can do more than simply we encrypt the data. When we're done, we decrypt the data. The idea is that we can also do encrypted computation. Various techniques, so for example, fully homomorphic encryption allows us to process the data while it's encrypted. We can add, we can multiply, well, if you think of it as we can do and and or, and we're doing this in binary, well, we can affect essentially do everything. Uh, some 
you know, but going beyond that, we have things like, can we actually protect the computation being performed? We don't even know what someone's doing with the data. So this is open research area. There's a lot of research prototypes to do many data processing tools using these techniques. There's a, a lot of things still open to do. Uh, so, uh, you know, typically people think of you encrypt the data, you decrypt it, you do something with it, you encrypt it again. Well, but we can actually do more than that. There's a lot of things we can do with the data while it's encrypted. And this gives a way to provide pretty strong protection. Um, you're, you're only doing with the data what that encrypted computation protocol allows you to do, and you can't do anything else with it. This ensures that the data is kept confidential and that you do, you know, that your use of the data fits within the expectations of what you're supposed to do. Uh, anonymization. Typically, the way we do anonymization, I talked about this k-anonymity. Typically, what we do is we generalize data. So we take things that can identify a person and we reduce the amount of information contained. So for example, instead of your birth date, which is, you know, there's, for most of the people or in this size room, probably everybody, your exact date of birth is going to be unique in this size. In this size. Um, there's, there's nobody else in this room who has that same date of birth. Uh, What if I just gave year? Well, for several of you, there may be somebody else in the room with the same birth year. Uh, for a couple of us, probably not. But uh, you know, if we ex expand this up, up the line, we get things. And the idea is that you think, for example, of the uh, Latanya Sweeney's example. If instead of having date of birth, it just had the year of birth, she wouldn't have been able to do that linkage. Wouldn't have been a problem. Uh, we have did a project where we actually did this, where we separated out identifying information and sensitive information. We encrypted the link between those but we allowed kind of generalized matching. You were allowed to do some matching of groups, but not of individuals. It's a different type of generalization. Rather than saying, I'm just going to give you know, part of the name rather than the whole name or, or part of the year, I've got the exact identifying information, just your link to the sensitive information is only at the level of the color because you don't have that encrypted ID. Okay, so that's problem with one of the problems with anonymity is it's it's as with all these techniques, you get enough information that additional piece of information you get may be too much. And anonymity is somewhat brittle in that sense. It tends to provide very good protection as long as it's working. But when you get enough background information to break it, 
it tends to deteriorate very rapidly till you've broken everything. Like in Latanya Sweeney's case, you went from, I can't recognize anybody in this database to I bought the voter registration list and I can recognize 87% of the people in the database. That's a, you know, that's a big jump. Noise addition is using randomized mechanisms. And the idea is that, you know, it doesn't, it's not brittle in that sense because there's always a chance that whatever you see is a result not of some individual, but of just the way the random noise happened to turn out. Uh, differential privacy is a example of this that has been of growing interest and importance. Uh, and you know, I mentioned the Census Bureau has used differential privacy. Google, Apple have both made use of differential privacy. It's hit the real world. There's been some real products that use differential privacy to, to analyze data while ensuring that you can't recover data about individuals from that. The idea behind differential privacy is that I have a true answer to my question. In this case, you know, 17 may be the answer to my, to my query, whatever that happens to be. How many people are there in this room? Uh, I'm not going to give that exact information. Maybe there's somebody who saw all, all but one person walk into the room. They know who's in the room, except for there's one person they don't know. They know they should be in there, but they don't know if they're actually there or not. I don't know if, they, if, if that person actually walked into this room. Well, if I give them the exact count, they'll know if that person's there. But if I add some noise to the account, to that amount, well, you know, 18, wait a minute, there weren't supposed to be 18 people in the room. Well, maybe it's just the noise in the answer. Maybe it was 17 and there was one additional person. Maybe it really is 18. Maybe it was 16 and just enough noise not got added to bounce this up by two. So that's the idea is that, and the key behind differential privacy is that the change in your answer based on the noise should be large to the change that happens from changing an individual in the database. So if I remove an individual, I should still get about the same answer. Uh, that the, the noise, the difference in the answer from the noise is different from the answer based on the data. And the other is that it needs to be large, or, or you know, that that needs to be any individual. Any individual who could potentially be part of the data that I'm computing the answer on. I would need to be able to remove that individual or add that individual and still get an answer that is approximately the same, uh, you know, that the noisy answer, essentially the distribution of answers that I get for these two databases 
should be so close that I really can't tell whether the difference is because of that person or just because of the random coin flips and the noise. Um, and the, the difference there is bounded by this e to the epsilon. That epsilon is our privacy uh, parameter. So how do we do this? Well, there's a couple of ways. Uh, one of the simplest, um, most well-known, primarily something used for numeric answers is the Laplace mechanism. The idea is that we add noise from a Laplacian distribution. What we're going to do is we're going to take our true answer and we're going to add noise which is from a Laplacian distribution where the essentially the width of that Laplacian distribution is determined by two things. What's called the sensitivity of the data and our privacy parameter epsilon. And what sensitivity does is it captures the largest contribution to the result that can be made by one individual. Basically what we're going to do is we're going to compare any two possible data sets that differ by one individual and say what are the answers on those two and the largest such number is the one we're using. So for example, if I were to say that my query, my f, is the count of people in this room, how much could that change if one person walked out of the room? Yeah, I heard the answer out there, one. If one person changes, one person walks out, one person walks in, doesn't matter who that person is, that number could change by at most one. So my sensitivity, my delta F is one. What if I said my answer is going to be the sum of the ages in this room? Well, if someone walks out of the room or someone walks in, how much could that change the answer of the sum of the ages in the room? What? That's the, that, okay, exactly. 20 or 25 on average? Yeah, probably around here, that's what it would change. But with differential privacy, you're not just looking at the average. You have to look at the maximum it could possibly change. So if I said it was 20 or 25, and, oh, the graduate surveyor who was recently in the, uh, uh, recently appeared in the exponent, uh, who's over 100, walks in, then, you know, that's like four people. It may well expose that that's who walked into the room. So you'd actually have to say, what is the oldest possible person that could walk into this room? You know, we'd probably be looking at something like 110 would be the amount that sum can change. So that's one of the difficulties with differential privacy is you have to understand how much that answer could change and it has to be based on how much it, it could possibly change, not on how much it would be expected to change. Here's another example of differential privacy. 
This actually predates differential privacy, but it turns out this is a privacy mechanism that satisfies differentially pri differential privacy. Randomized response, the idea is you're being asked to submit a survey, but it's one that's sensitive information. You might not want people to find that out. So what you're going to do is you are going to flip a coin. If the coin comes up heads, you give the true answer. If it comes up tails, you flip the coin again and you just put yes or no depending on whether it's heads or tails. The true answer for an individual with a 25% probability, it's, you know, it's what you're looking at, at as an answer. Well, no. If you see a yes, um, there's a chance that it's a true yes, but there's a chance that it's a coin flip. With 50% probability, you're seeing the result of a coin flip. With 50% probability, you're seeing the true answer. So it's really tough to tell what you're looking at. But if we average this over a lot of people, then we can show that we don't just take the answer that we get, we modify that answer. We take one quarter times one minus that average answer plus three quarters times the average of the private answer and that actually gives us our true answer. And you can, you can prove that this works out. The variance is higher than if we just gotten the true answer from everybody. But the expected value is the same. And it satisfies differential privacy, in this case with epsilon equal log of 3. Um, a third mechanism is what's referred to as the exponential mechanism. Uh, exponential mechanism where you know, x is your data, u captures how much the, a given result distorts the outcome for the database if I give the wrong result. And you know, delta u is sensitivity. What we're going to do is we're going to select an R with probability proportional to that value. So with most likely, we're going to select something that is the correct result. But with some probability, we would select something which is less likely. So this would work for like categorical variables. If you're doing, uh, say, a classifier that says whether, uh, you know, that's say in facial recognition that says which person the face belongs to. Well, to satisfy differential privacy, I would have to have that sometimes give the wrong answer using this formula. Uh, now remember, the privacy we're protecting here is not the person whose face is being classified right now. It's 
the people who were in the data set. So what this would say is I could have my facial recognition software say, oh, that person is Chris, and it may be that Chris wasn't even in the training data to begin with. It just is kind of taking a wild guess. So you never really know, you know how correct this is. With high probability, it's doing the right thing. With some probability, uh, and essentially the key is, again, the probability that it's coming up uh, with a particular answer and getting it right or not is more dependent on the noise than it is on any one particular person having been in that data. So some differential privacy has some cool properties. So let's assume M is a differentially private mechanism. Well, there's a post-processing theorem that states that anything we do with the data after we've done the differential private private mechanism still satisfies differential privacy. That as long as I don't go back to the original data, I'm not going to be able to, to get any worse in terms of differential privacy than I already was. If I met epsilon differential privacy, I still will. The second is composition. Suppose we have two differentially private mechanisms. If we apply both of them to the same data set, our privacy loss is basically the sum of you know, our, our epsilon. Zero epsilon is perfect privacy. As it goes up, you know, privacy gets worse. What's this saying is if I look at the data twice, the first time it's epsilon one private, second time it's epsilon two private, I put that data together, I'm guaranteed to be at least epsilon one plus epsilon two private. What this means is there's, as long as you're using differentially private mechanisms, there's no point at which one more piece of information suddenly breaks it. It's, you get this graceful degradation. Uh, now, how does this square with my idea that one bit may, you know, you know, may save you or may be enough to break privacy? Well, problem is, what does epsilon really mean? Epsilon isn't actually a statement about uh, how well the data is protected in terms of or how identifiable the data is. It's actually a much more subtle and kind of hard to understand thing. So there's been a number of attempts to try to explain this. We did a paper a few years back called Differential Identifiability, which where we were saying, well, our real goal would be to bound the probability of identification. So can we do this in a way that makes sense from a differential privacy point of view? The idea here was 
let's come up with this definition which looks like differential privacy but speaks in terms of identification. The key is this talked about what is the probability of identification under a fairly simple model. So if we assume, for example, that my mechanism is giving me something that if it gave me the exact mechanism or it gave me the exact value, I would be able to link that to something I know. It's a, it's a kind of a simple, obvious attack. How much protection are we getting against that sort of an attack? Now, this is not saying that a stronger attacker couldn't violate and, and identify, but it gives us a way to calibrate. And this combines with that nice, graceful degradation property of differential privacy to give us something which is a lot stronger than some of the, the other anonymity notions. Um, you know, so the idea is it's, we can think of this as a game. The, we pick a database, the adversary picks a query, we give them the result, they say, what are all the possible worlds that are consistent with what I know and, or with that result? What are all the possible databases that would be consistent? And in which one of those does the user exist? Well, that tells me if the user is in that database. So it's, you know, it's not saying you have arbitrary external knowledge. It's, it's not talking about that, but it's saying if I assume I have this simple game uh, as what I'm trying to do, what is the level of protection? So it's telling us here is one point in the adversary space where we know just how strong the adversary is against whatever our mechanism is. And we calibrate our epsilon so that we get that point to be where we think it's reasonable. And then we know we get this reasonable, graceful de degradation beyond that. So I'm not going to, uh, there's a lot more I could go into in this. I'm, I'm not going to go on. It's, it's an open area, and hopefully we'll get some more talks on this. What I would like to leave you with when you're thinking about privacy is the Fair Information Practices, or FIPS, Fair Information Practices and Principles, you'll also hear them termed, uh, but you'll hear the term FIPS. These are some things that came out many years ago that are still very good line, guidelines to think of when you think in terms of privacy. It's not just confidentiality. There's notice or awareness. You know, have I told the user what they're you know, what's, if I told the person what's going to happen with their data, are they aware of what's going to happen with the data? Those aren't necessarily the same. Choice and consent. Do I have a choice? Have I given my consent? A lot of the consent now doesn't involve a choice. You know, walk into a doctor's office. What is your choice? Sign this form as a consent form 
if you don't sign it, are they going to treat you? Is that a choice? That's an interesting problem. Access and participation. You have access to data. You have participation in what's done with it. Integrity and security. The data is protected, is kept correct. And enforcement and redress. If it's not, these problems aren't met, there's something you can do about it. Uh, so this is just something to keep in mind that often when people think of privacy, they only think of some parts of these, but keeping it all in mind is really what you need to do to, you know, and a lot of these require computer, secu you know, computer security as an important part in accomplishing many of these. So. Well, thanks. Uh, hopefully everybody has signed in. Uh, if any of you have any questions about the class itself, I will uh, let me know and we can talk afterwards. So, thanks.